Amen. I invite you to take the Bible this morning and turn with me to First uh, Kings, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First Kings chapter sixteen, and you might also want to pull the message outline out of the bulletin. You can follow along, jot a few notes as we go along. We're going to jump into a place in Israel's history where the kingdom is no longer united. Now there is a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and it will stay that way for the remainder of the Old Testament. There would be 20 kings in the southern kingdom and 20 kings in the northern kingdom, and the kings in the the northern kingdom were all evil, every single one of them. And we're going to meet one of them today, King Ahab, along with Elijah, the prophet of God. There's a key concept this morning. I hope you'll file it away in your mind and in your heart. Here's the key concept. God sees, God cares, God is there for you and with you through your ups and downs. And we're going to look at some of the highs and lows of Elijah the prophet. You can see there are a few scenes that we're going to look at. The first scene starts in chapter 16, 1 Kings. If you have found your place, look at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's in the southern kingdom, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, now look at this, look at this. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the sight of the Lord than any of those before him. It's a new all-time record low. Verse 31, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam pertaining mainly to idolatry, but he also, he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal. Now notice that name, Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar to Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Okay? Let's just pause there for a moment. Ahab marries a pagan wife. The the Sidonites lived on the north Mediterranean coast, an area also called Phoenicia. His wife's name is Jezebel. Maybe you've heard that name before. He more or less puts her in charge of religion in the northern kingdom. And Jezebel, who's a, a Baal worshiper, adopted as her agenda to destroy the worship of God, the worship of Yahweh in Israel, and to replace it with the worship of her god, Baal. And we're told in the 18th chapter, verse 4, one of the ways she tried to carry this out, among other ways, was by systematically killing off the prophets of the Lord. And this is unprecedented. Prophets in Israel had been given kind of a, a diplomatic immunity. And you may have noticed in stories involving prophets in the Old Testament, kings often hated them, but they didn't dare harm them. But not Jezebel. No, she's having them murdered in cold blood. That's the situation the northern kingdom was in. And you wonder, you wonder as you read it, is God going to let this go on? 
Now, chapter 17 is the, the introduction to Elijah. Chapter 17. Look at verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word, except at the Lord's word. Now, the clear meaning of this is that a drought is coming, and it's God's judgment on Ahab and the corruption of the northern kingdom, and the choice of drought as the judgment is no mistake, because Baal, Baal was regarded primarily as the weather god. So you can see what's coming. We're going to find out who the real God is. Now we know that Jezebel, what she's been doing to the prophets of Yahweh. So imagine the courage it took for Elijah to say these words. Now imagine the courage. Verse 2. Then the, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You'll drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. God says, Elijah, go hide. And Elijah says, okay. And then there are a a series of of miracles in his life. God uses ravens to bring Elijah bread and meat twice a day. And he he provides water from a, a brook. And when that brook dries up, he sends Elijah to a widow. This is very interesting. Look at verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Notice he says, Go to Zarephath of Sidon. You remember who else was from Sidon? Jezebel, one of the Sidonites. It's a a striking thing. This woman is a widow. The most poor, the most vulnerable member of society. No one would think of her. She'd be the, the last person anybody would think of to ask for help. Not only that, she's from Sidon, Jezebel's hometown. She, she's a pagan, a pagan. But God sees and God cares for this pagan widow of Sidon. Now look at verse 12. Elijah comes to this widow and says, would you give me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? And please give me a piece of bread. This is verse 12. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied. And notice she doesn't say, my God. She says, as surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied. I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. It's going to be our last supper. They're in a dire situation. Verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do, as, do, uh, and do as you have said, but first, first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself. Now the key phrase here is, but first, but first, before you make something for yourself, first make a meal for me and then, then God will take care of you. Now, if I were the widow, I think I'd be very tempted to say, you know, I think I'd rather have God go first. You know, tell God to fill up the flour jar and the oil jug, and then, then I'll fix you something. And God's question to the widow is, will you trust me now with what you've got? 
The simple truth is, if you won't trust God now with what you have, you won't trust him when you get more. More by itself never builds trust. And now we come to to one of the more more amazing statements in Scripture, I think, in, in verse 15. It says, very simply, she went away and did as Elijah had told her. Now, again, imagine the drama of this moment. This is a widow. Her son depends on her. She takes whatever flour, whatever oil she has, all that's left in the desperation of the drought, and she dumps it out. And she's supposed to make a meal for Elijah with all that she has left. Now, I would be tempted to make Elijah a very, very small loaf of bread. Maybe a cracker. (laughs) But she makes this meal for Elijah. She has nothing left. If God doesn't act, she and her boy will surely die. She trusted God like that. She takes this to Elijah, and Elijah says to her, go look in the jar. And she goes and looks, and it's full. And she uses it that day. And the next day she goes back and looks, and the jar is full again. And the next morning, and the next morning, one day at a time. One day at a time, God supplies for her. God sees, and God cares. And she probably wondered this widow, what if I had said no? What if I had not trusted God? And who would have guessed that such reckless generosity would have resulted in such abundant blessing? Who would have guessed? I want to pause here for just a second and ask you, how are you doing with this reckless generosity thing? How's that, how's that going with you? Are you being faithful with the tithe? Are you responsive to the needs of the poor? Are, are you really trusting God to provide? Are you on an adventure of generosity with God? Because it's still true what Jesus said, give and it will be given unto you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Are you using a generous measure when you give? Well, later on, this woman's son dies unexpectedly. And she says in verse 18 to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? And she's wondering, is God some kind of cruel person without mercy who, who comes and you know, kills her son because of her sin? And Elijah prays. And again, God sees. And God cares. And her son is raised up. Her son is restored. And this woman comes to believe in the one true God. And at the end of the 17th chapter, she says, verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. It's an amazing introduction to the prophet Elijah, but there's more. We're going to move on to the second scene, chapter 18. God uses Elijah to call his people back from the worship of Baal. The issue of idolatry, which has always troubled Israel from the start, it's coming to a crisis point. It's going to tip one way or the other. And Elijah will have to force Israel to decide 
Who is your God going to be? And by the way, his name, Elijah, actually consists of a confession. Jah, Yah, Elijah, comes from Yahweh. El, Elijah, comes from Elohim. So it means the Lord, Yahweh, is Elohim. That's Elijah's name. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. That's his name. And that's his mission. And now we come to the main battle. This this is a standoff of epic proportions in chapter 18. So let's go there and follow along with me. Verse 1, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. Go and present yourself to Ahab. This is an assignment I don't think Elijah was hoping for. Do you? Now, couldn't I just go back to that brook and, you know, the ravens? God says, go. And then verse 2, it says, so Elijah went to present himself to Ahab, okay? Now, notice, notice in verse 3. Now, the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of his palace. And then this parenthetical statement, Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so we will not have to kill any of our animals. You see that? In in a severe drought, Ahab's concern is not for people. He's concerned about the horses and mules for military strength. Well, this servant, Obadiah, finds Elijah and arranges a meeting. And so in verse 16... Elijah confronts Ahab, verse 16. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab then went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now think about this. Here's Elijah, a runaway preacher whom Jezebel is trying to kill. And here's Ahab, the king of Israel, the one who's in charge and who's giving the orders. Elijah. He has no office, no crown, no throne, but he commands and the king does what he says. Where where does he get such authority? It's the authority of one human being utterly sold out, utterly devoted to God, utterly yielded to God. A remarkable thing. Ahab wears the crown, it's true, but but he's a man without a, a single serious conviction in his body. He doesn't believe anything down to his bones. And so he becomes quite passive in the face of any strong character. Jezebel, his wife, who's quite evil, or Elijah, the prophet, who stands for God. Now, imagine this scene. Ahab sends the word throughout all Israel. The whole country is gathered. 
and on one side stand those 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 other prophets of Asherah, 850 prophets of idols. On that side also stands the king and all the power of government and all the armies. On that side is also the freedom to do whatever you want. There's no law on that side that you have to care for for the orphan and the widow and the alien, alien. There's no call to devotion to God or neighbor. Just idolatry that promises sexual pleasure and material abundance. That's on the one side. On the other side is one man, one solitary prophet who emerges from years of hiding to confront a king and to confront a country single-handedly. But with that man is their God, the God who made them a country. And Elijah, in an unbelievable act of courage, takes on the whole nation. Now look at verse 21. All the people are assembled. All the prophets stand on Mount Carmel. The king is standing with them. Verse 21, Elijah went before the people. This is just unbelievable courage to me. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And here's the, here's the striking thing. The, the people don't think they've rejected Yahweh, the God of Israel. Oh, they, they still pray to him when nothing else works. You know, they, they've just added Baal. And that's the way idolatry works. That, that's why it was such a threat to the nation of Israel. They decided they'll worship both. And the word translated waver here literally means to hobble or to limp. And the Hebrew would often use the word walk as a metaphor for life. Pastor Grant mentioned that a few weeks ago. And Elijah is saying they've chosen a miserable way to live. They're just limping along. They're just hobbling along in life. And I want to pause here again just long enough to ask do you have any bales that you're wrestling with this morning? Do you? See, a bale is anything that, that would draw you away from full devotion to God. It could be a relationship. It could be a lifestyle that keeps you from, from recklessly giving toward, toward the poor. And for some, it's a habit or addiction that you've kept shrouded in secrecy. And, and that's the idol that you hang on to, even though you know God does not want you to. Your bail could, could be a grudge that you hold on to and you're not going to let it go. Could be pride. Could be power. And sometimes, sometimes bail is just the insistence, I've got to be in control of my life. I, I've got to reserve for myself the, the right to do what I want to do. Now, maybe you've been telling yourself that you could hold on to your little bail and hold on to God too, but you cannot. Elijah says, no. The human heart is capable of giving its ultimate allegiance. Your heart is capable of giving its ultimate devotion to only one master, only one. And Jesus said it, no one can serve two masters. And Elijah says, if it's going to be Baal, just be honest about it. Don't add hypocrisy to disobedience. If it's going to be Baal, and that's the way your drift carries you, if, if it's going to be Baal, then just be honest about it. But if it's going to be God, 
then fall on your knees and confess and repent and start walking with him. But you must choose. It's decision time. One man, one prophet, standing before a whole nation in defiance of a king and 850 prophets. One man says, you've got to choose. And we wait for the, for the people's response. This is an extraordinary moment. Now look at the end of verse 21. Elijah says, how long will you waver? How long will you teeter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now look at this. But the people said, wait for it, nothing. Just dead silence for who knows how long. The nation just stands there and they won't respond. Some of them are sullen and some are defiant. Maybe some are confused. Some some of them are thinking, choose, why should I choose? This is working for me. Life's working for me. I can call on Yahweh's power when I want to, but Baal, Baal lets me follow my my own agenda. Why should I choose? I'm going to keep a hold of, of the steering wheel. I will stay in control. Thank you very much. No one says a word. And I thought as I read through this passage, you know, how sad the silence of the people must have been to God. You know, how sad. After all the centuries of his care, a nation to whom he's fully given himself, and they all just stand there in silence. Nobody stands up for him. But still, he does not give up on them. Amazing. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let them choose which one they want for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl, same way, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And then all the people said, what you say is good. And so Elijah gives further instructions. Now, Elijah here is making things hard for God. He's stacking the deck against God. Baal, you know, is the God of nature. He's pictured in ancient depictions with lightning bolts in his hand. So fire, fire should, have, should have been a piece of cake for Baal. Now, he's in control of fire. That's what the people thought. Should have been real easy for Baal. But look at verse 26. So they took the bowl given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of of Baal from morning till noon. Oh, Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they made. You know, Baal is not doing very well. And Elijah wants to make sure that everyone understands the utter absurdity of, of putting your trust in Baal. And so he engages in some prophetic trash-talking. Now look at verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's in deep thought, or busy, or traveling. I mean, maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Now this passage, it's a little hard to translate from the Hebrew but, but the intent is to, to use mockery and humor and sarcasm to, to show the people how ridiculous it was to pray to a God who isn't there. 
And Elijah, now he's going full throttle to help people see how, how crazy this is. You know, maybe, you're, maybe your God suffers from D-A-D-D. You know, div divinity attention deficit disorder. <laughs> maybe that's the case. Well, the prophets of Baal, they don't have much of a sense of humor. And they take Elijah quite seriously. And they decide that they have to try harder to get Baal's attention. Look at verse 28. So they shouted louder. They said, yeah, maybe Elijah's right. Maybe, maybe Baal's developed a hearing problem. They shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response, no one answered. No one paid attention. Now, this is going on for hours, from morning till noon, till nightfall, until it was time for the evening sacrifice. That is the sacrifice to God. And then finally, Elijah just puts it to an end, and he calls the people over to him and very carefully prepares the altar. Verse 31 says, he takes 12 stones. You may know 12 is a very significant number. The text says he, he takes one for each of the 12 tribes. He's reminding the people basically who it was that made them a nation in the first place. And then he prays. And what a contrast to the wild excesses of the prophets of Baal. What, what a contrast. And, and just make careful note of the contrast because sometimes there are Christians who pray more like prophets of Baal than like Elijah. They, they think they have to get God's attention somehow by praying loud enough or long enough or with the right kind of formula or enough boldness or, or making some kind of bargain with God. God's not that way. He's not that kind of God. Elijah just very calmly talks to God by faith. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Here's his prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. Why? So these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And God sends fire down from heaven, and it burns up the sacrifice. And not just that, but the wood and the stones and the soil licks up the water in the trench that was dug around the altar. And now the, the people cry out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. That's Elijah's name. The Lord, he is God. And the prophets of Baal are defeated and destroyed and beaten down for good. And few people have experienced the manifestation of the power of God like Elijah did. It's because of what's at stake at, at that point in the history of Revelation, in the history of the nation, that the people have to decide. This idolatry thing cannot go on. Elijah experiences this unbelievable power from God, and that's what makes the, the next scene, the next chapter, so fascinating. So let's go there. Chapter 19 and verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may, the God deal, may God, God's deal with me be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. That is 
That is a threat right there. And then you go down to verse 3. The threat works. Uh, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. The, the same Elijah who defied a king, who defeated 450 prophets of Baal and another 400 prophets of Asherah, who took on an entire nation single-handedly, who survived by by ravens at a brook, who resuscitated the, the, the dead son of a widow by the power of God. This same Elijah runs at the threat of one queen. And you say, how can this be? I mean, after such a huge victory, such an incredible display of God's power, it seems so strange, so out of place. And it tells us something very important, and that is nobody stays on the mountaintop forever. Nobody. Now, here's the truth about your life. You will have spiritual peaks and valleys as long as you live. I mean, it's possible for your life to go you know, upward and to the right, the spiritual trajectory of your life in the direction of transformation, and that's what we're called to. But you will have spiritual peaks and valleys all along the way in that journey. And sometimes, it's hard to wrap our minds around, but sometimes it's after an unbelievable, adrenaline-filled, record-setting run of achievement and spiritual victory that you find yourself most vulnerable to doubt and fear and even depression. That's exactly what happened with Elijah. As high as he was in chapter 18, that's how low he gets in chapter 19. So look at verse 4, chapter 19. He's on the run, traveling, running. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went on a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed. What did he pray? He prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. I have had enough. That's an amazing prayer. And even in our day, it's the kind of thing people will say when they're at their wit's end or when they come to the end of their patience. You know, maybe you've heard a, a parent say to a child, I've had just about enough. And a wise child won't say, you want a little bit more? <laughs> you know, there's plenty more where that came from. And they know. They know this is a human being who's just about ready to snap. Well, Elijah's just about to snap. This same Elijah who prayed and fire came down from heaven, who prayed for rain and a drought was ended, who prayed for strength and outran a chariot in chapter 18, he prays for one more thing. God, let me die. The good news is God doesn't always answer our prayers because he loves us so much. And instead of answering Elijah's prayer, he sends a ministering angel. Look at verse, verse 5. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All of a sudden, an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. And God treats Elijah the way you would treat an out-of-sorts two-year-old. You know, here's a muffin, here's some juice, have a snack, take a nap. <laughs> and Elijah does. And then it, it's repeated again. And then he travels 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. Look at, look at verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And that, that question is asked for a reason. This journey Elijah was on, he started in the northern kingdom and he went down toward Israel, down to the southern kingdom. That's where Beersheba is. But then he left his servant. He went into the Negev desert. And the desert he runs into, that's beyond the southern kingdom. That is beyond the boundary of the southern kingdom. So what's really happening is uh, Elijah has left God's people. And when he hit Beersheba, he was safe from Jezebel. She was way up there in the northern kingdom of Israel. He could have stopped there. This is not just a safety deal. You know, metaphorically, he left God's people. He left his post. That's why God said, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah had classic signs of depression, suicidal thoughts, you know, wanting his life to end. He had to be reminded to eat and sleep. He, he had a distorted perspective of reality. And when he makes his complaint to God, he says, the Israelites have rejected the covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death by the sword. It was really Jezebel who put those prophets to, to death. But he says it was all of Israel. That, that's what happens sometimes in depression. Our, our perspective gets distorted. And you can bet there was a little voice inside Elijah saying to himself, so you call yourself a prophet? You have more doubt and fear than the people you preach to. You, you ran out on God after all he did for you. You left the people just when they started turning from Baal, needed you most. There, there's no way that God could use someone like you again. And you can bet those thoughts were circulating inside Elijah's head. But God sees, and God cares, and God does an amazing thing. Look at verse 11. Verse 11, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled back his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him this question again, What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah runs through the complaint once again, word for word, in verse 14. Same complaint he gave to God in verse 10. And God, God does this amazing thing. He sends an earthquake and then wind and fire and then a gentle whisper. And Elijah's still giving him the same excuse. And we wonder, what's God going to do with him? Is God going to give up on Elijah? Not at all. The Lord says in verse, in verse 15, go back the way you came. God gives him a new perspective. God says, Elijah, you're not alone. There are thousands of others who stand for you, uh, stand up uh, for me with you, that, that haven't bent the knee to Baal, that, that have not kissed him. And God's going to give him a new friend, Elisha. But the main thing God does, the main thing he does, he gives him a new assignment. Go back the way you came. I have new leaders for you to anoint. I, I have a new prophet for you to train. 
And sometimes when people are hurting really bad, what they need is a new sense of purpose, a sense of renewal. They need to know that, that God has something for them to do. And that's what God does with Elijah. In the Old Testament, we, we read about the call or commissioning of, of leaders like Abraham and Moses and, and Gideon. This is kind of a rare thing. This is a recommissioning. This is a, a recall. And Elijah goes back down the mountain and he begins a, a whole new chapter in his adventure with God. And I want to say a brief word just before we close. To those especially who may be feeling something like Elijah, I've had enough. If you ever get tired or depressed or afraid, or you ever feel like, like you've blown it and God is not going to use you in the same way anymore, I want to invite you to do right now what Elijah did, and that is to run to God. To run to God. He sees. He cares. He's there through the ups and downs. Let's run to God together. Would you stand? We're going to pray. I just want to remind you, every week, every single week, we have some prayer, people of prayer over here by the organ. They love people. They love, love the Lord. They love to pray. And today, maybe you're wrestling with something, wrestling through something. You could just use someone to lift you up before God, to lift your need up before Him. And so I... I strongly encourage you, before you leave, just come on down. They'll be here to, to meet you and just to lift, lift whatever need you have to the Lord today. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, every one of us knows in our own real small ways the ups and downs of Elijah, the time when, when it seems like you're answering prayer left and right and we can see your hand at work. Things are happening. There are breakthroughs. And then there are those times when we kind of get scared. We run away. And we feel useless or inadequate. We're so grateful to know, Father, that you still see and you still care. And so we pause now to listen once more for that still small voice. And to remember that your mercy and grace are still deep enough and wide enough to be fully sufficient for us. We run to you right now, God, just as Elijah ran to you. Into your open arms. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.